1: What is happening, guys? This is something we have been excited about for quite some time on the podcast. In today's episode, we begin a several-part look at labor issues in the NFL. In today's episode, we go deep into 1982 and look at the player strike in 82 and all the issues that existed between management and players. And it's super important, I think, to look at this. Just on the heels of ratifying the new CBA in the NFL, I think it's going to be an insightful look, especially from Bill's kind of unique perspective uh, as he was a scout in Kansas City and then knowing all the issues that have happened in the last 30 years uh, but taking a look at this embryonic kind of modern era phase of uh, negotiation between players and management in the NFL so this one's gonna be fun buckle in we're jumping the DeLorean and we are setting the dial to 82 let's go And we are live on the Inside Football podcast. Uh, We are recording on a Monday in the midst of a global pandemic, but life is largely starting to find its routine. Uh, I'm happier than I've been in about two weeks uh, in my in-law's house. How are you guys doing today? I
2: I would say I'm less happy that you're in your in-law's house. (laughs) Hey, that
1: works. That's fine. That seems fair. (laughs)
0: If you're in your in-law's house and happy, that's good enough for me.
1: It counts. It's a very reasonable thing. Yeah, no, I feel like I am the son-in-law gold standard of what you need in the midst of a global pandemic apocalypse. But hey, but that's all we're talking about. So let's, let's talk about more fun stuff today. Uh, today's episode is going to be a fun one, guys. So we're going to dive deep into the world of the 1982 NFL labor strike. And uh, a little different format we're going to introduce to you guys today that I think is going to work uh, really well in terms of giving everybody a deep understanding of you know the topics and everything that was happening around uh, around 1982. Uh, and sort of in this new format, at the beginning of each episode, we're actually going to introduce a glossary of terms. So a couple terms, really simple, just so that we all have a common syntax. Then we're gonna get into like who the main characters are, so we can dive really deep on it, and then we'll dive into our story. So I think this is gonna be fun uh, for you guys, fun for us. And you know, as with as always, if you have feedback or you have things on the show, you know, hit us up on social media, and we will be sure to include it in the show because this is truly an iterative process with you guys. But uh, without any further ado, let's dive into the world of '82, and we're gonna start in our glossary today. We got three terms today, and the first one is is one that should be familiar to most, because we just kind of went through this process in the league. Uh, but what is collective bargaining?
2: So collective bargaining is really described um, as a sort of a long and very multifaceted written agreement that's negotiated between an employer or a group of employers like the NFL and a union, uh, which represents all the workers Uh, that uh, are in play, and the substance is wages, hours, and working conditions, and when you really think of all those, that really controls basically everything that's going on in the workplace.
1: Cool. And this was in 82, still kind of a relatively new phenomenon in the NFL is the first collective bargaining agreement wasn't actually you know struck until 1968. So we're still kind of in 1982, 14 years into this. And I guess, you know, paired with that is, you know, what is a union and what does that really mean? Because I think a lot of people have a sense of what that means. People are in them. But uh, it would it would help me in my sort of limited mindset of, you know, if you could just kind of give me the 411 on what an actual union is.
2: Yeah. So um, a union is the collective body that represents the workers. The way you go about it is uh, you have to get a percentage of workers at a given job uh, or who work for a particular employer to vote, to, to say that they want to uh, attempt to unionize. Then you have a vote and if a majority of the people, Uh, employees want to have a union, they do. Once that happens, uh, they are under the aegis of the National Labor Relations Act, uh, which has a lot of protections for people in unions. Uh, It has a lot of rules that both sides have to follow. Uh, And again, they are the really the exclusive, typically the exclusive bargaining agent for everything that has to do with life on that job whether you are a longshoreman, you are a, a steelworker, you know, or you are uh, a uh, deep sea fisherman, if you're if you had a union for those guys.
1: Okay, cool. And then the final big thing that you'll see kind of bubble up in today's episode, and it's going to be a running theme whenever we do these collective bargaining shows. And I think there's no better person on earth to kind of answer this question uh, than Bill. But w- what is free agency? Uh, and what does it contextually obviously mean in in, in the NFL sense?
0: Well, in the sports world in general, particularly the big four sports of hockey, football, basketball, and baseball on a professional level, free agency means that a player has completed his contractual obligations to a club with whom he signed a contract, and now... Uh, He has no further uh, obligation to that club, and he can move to, within the guidelines of a collective bargaining agreement, he can move to another club at will. That And he, therefore, is a free agency, a free agent. And as a result, um, obviously, when a guy is free to go on the open market, Prices rise uh, uh, pretty uh, effectively and intensely. And as a result, the players have always wanted, one, in one form or another, free agency. But as we enter 1982, free agency becomes, uh, if not front and center, certainly the undergirding of everything that the Players Association is talking to the NFL about. And the same is true in all the other big four sports.
1: And the NFL was kind of a laggard with free agency, right?
0: Yes, it was. Baseball uh, came effectively in 77 through the ruling of an arbitrator. And uh, it's really a, a convoluted uh, uh, case, but it, but it ended up uh, an arbitrator declared Andy Smith, the pitcher uh, free of his contract. And, uh, and, As a result, total free agency came to baseball for a brief period of time. But Marvin Miller, the head of the Baseball Players Association, immediately negotiated a completely different system of free agency, which is largely intact today in baseball. Basketball, uh, Oscar Robertson, one of the greatest players of all time, uh, sued for free agency in, in basketball and and he won in court um and as a result the NF the nba entered into a collective bargaining agreement which gave basketball players effective free agency the nfl as you correctly point out is was last to the party
2: you know uh, the, in that going back to that baseball example for a second yeah you know, you'll recall bill that that arbitrator was peter Seitz uh and the, the other guy who was up who was sort of the co Plaintiff, so to speak, was Dave McNally of the Baltimore Orioles, uh, but I think Bill made a an observation that shows how what a really brilliant guy Marvin Miller was, uh, who was really probably the, the greatest labor leader uh, in the history of, of professional sports. Because uh, when the ruling came down, as Bill said, e- everybody, everybody in baseball was going to be free when their contract ran out, and, and Marvin Miller realized that if everybody's free, then You flood the market and each individual guy's value goes down. So he negotiated something where they staged in free agency and thus turning the supply and demand curve in favor of the players.
1: Very true. Very true. Well, I don't think we can do a discussion of sort of free agency in the NFL or even sort of the unions want for free agency in the NFL than without a discussion of Ed Garvey, who was the head of the uh, NFL PA during this period in 1982. Uh, you know, Rick, I think obviously you're, you're best suited to kind of dive into this at some level, having been at the PA. But uh, who was Ed? Why is Ed important? Why do we need to know about Ed?
2: Okay, let's start out with some full disclosure. Ed indeed was my boss during my years at the NFLPA, but he was also uh, a good friend who I thoroughly enjoyed spending time with outside the workplace. He was a lifelong progressive activist, starting out in his, at his days uh, at the University of Wisconsin at Madison, uh, where he was elected president of the student body. Uh, always had a bit of the Paul in him, uh, ran for, and won the job as president of a group that was comprised of all the student body presidents at colleges and universities throughout the United States. Uh, he moved in uh, political circles uh, that were consistent with his views. Uh, he was there for the uh, announcement of the Port Huron Statement, which was, a political manifesto uh, that set a template for a more egalitarian society in the United States, uh, including civil rights, uh, workers' rights, and political accountability. Now, uh, the, the the manifesto had been written by Tom Hayden, who some will remember as the leader of SDS, Students for a Democratic Society, uh, viewed by some as a radical organization. Others may remember Tom Hayden as Jane Fonda's second husband. Uh, In any event, Ed was a brilliant lawyer who um, first came into contact with the NFLPA in 1970 as its outside counsel, and then the next year he was elected uh, as its executive director. He then moved the operation to Washington, D.C., Ed saw the labor relations in the NFL as part of the greater uh, class struggle between workers and management worldwide. Uh, given that view, Pete Rozelle used to refer to Ed as Madison Red. Uh, Ed was uh, very quick-witted. Um, give you an example, uh, one time he surprisingly got this uh, invitation from the Tampa Bay Rotary Club to be their upcoming after dinner speaker. Uh, given Ed's perception uh, in the business community, uh, he had never received any kind of an invitation like this before, so he was kind of skeptical. He called us into his office one by one and asked us, "Did we cook this thing up? Was this, you know, was this for real?" When we finally convinced him it was and that he was not being punked, um, he thought about it and decided he would accept the invitation because worst case. He was getting a free trip to Tampa Bay, uh, where he's t- taking a meeting with the Bucks, uh, and uh, you know, free dinner. Uh, so, you know, how bad could this be? So he goes down there. He he meets with the the, the Buccaneers. He goes to the Rotary Club meeting, has the dinner, and gets up and starts speaking. Um, and looks out at the room, seeing all these business types, and says, uh, "You know." Standing here looking at you all uh, brings me back to the days when I was in Catholic school and the nuns would tell us about Christians being thrown to the lions. And I always wondered what I would do. Would I try and find the weakest lion and fight him? Would I take on the strongest lion, hoping to dissuade the other lions? And I realized what I probably would do was going to start out by saying, my fellow lions. So I save you today. My fellow Rotarians, ours is not an easy task. Uh, Anyhow, Ed uh, starts going through the speech and he starts talking about how professional athletes are mistreated and underpaid, all of them, not just football players, but also hockey players and basketball players and baseball players. And when he gets to the baseball part, some guy from the audience yells
0: bullshit.
2: And Ed goes, rodeo's next. Ed uh, used to say to me, Schaefer, there's nothing wrong with the Jews. They just didn't get the second half of the book. And I would retort by saying, Garvey were the most dangerous combination in the world. He'd go, what's that? And I'd say, a Jew with a law degree and an Irishman with a high school diploma.
1: Right. Uh, Coming from the great state of uh, Wisconsin. So so on one side of this 82 story you you have Ed Garvey who's the head of the NFLPA and then on the other side you know from from an ownership perspective you had kind of a two horse Kind of triumvirate, but it was very much led by uh, Hugh Culverhouse, the owner of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Uh, Bill, who was who was Hugh Culverhouse, and what was his sort of significance in this uh, labor dispute in 1982?
0: Hugh Culverhouse was a lawyer. Uh, he was a small town lawyer, effectively in Alabama. Uh, he ended up making some Hollywood connections and because of his expertise in tax law, became rather prominent in certain sections of the entertainment business. The Tampa Bay Buccaneers were originally scheduled to be owned by another group. The expansion franchise had been granted, and at the last minute, that group didn't have enough money. And the NFL went searching for an owner and found Hugh Culverhouse. And since, as a tax lawyer, he knew lots of loopholes and could see around lots of corners, and always drove a hard hard harder hard s bargain. He essentially got the franchise for a song he didn't have to put up all of the money that typically uh, other franchise owners would have to and um he got a great many concessions from the league, not the least of which was that the uh Tampa Bay Buccaneers would be in the n f c Central Division at that time, which had Minnesota, Detroit, and Green Bay in the division, ensuring, therefore, that when Minnesota, Green uh, Green Bay, and Detroit, and Chicago came to Tampa Bay to play, hopefully, and Culverhouse engineered this virtually every year, in the winter months, uh, he'd have lots of snowbirds who came down to see their favorite teams play. Uh, He needed them because he, from a standpoint of on-field success, uh, he was probably among the worst in the NFL. As far as his views toward union, uh, he viewed them uh, sort of as communistic, un-American, and and completely uh, unrealistic operations. And uh, the sooner they're broken and out of his business, the better.
2: Okay, let me give you a quick sidebar about uh, Hugh Culverhouse. Hugh Culverhouse was also... Uh, the estate attorney for Carol Rosenblum. Carol Rosenblum had been the owner of the Baltimore Colts and then the Los Angeles Rams. So this could be the time where we could discuss the very suspicious death of Carol Rosenblum and the bizarre memorial service that followed, but we won't. We'll do that in a subsequent show. And that is what's known in the business as a tease. Right, Scott?
1: Right. And sort of complicated in that was his bringing in of, because he was responsible for bringing in, kind of our next important character, Jack Donlin, who would be kind of the lead negotiator for the owners through this process, right?
0: Yeah, that's correct. The owners have a, a group called the NFL Management Council, who does the statistical and and financial work and the, uh, arguing the labor uh, uh, negotiations and, and court cases, if necessary, uh, for the league. And uh, Hugh Culverhouse got himself named as chairman of the NFL Management Council and brought in a uh, uh, a management lawyer from Eastern Airlines named Jack Donlin. Rick knows uh, Jack well, and I'll let him take it from there.
1: But that's pretty amazing in the sense that, you know, Hugh Culverhouse, this figure who, you know, wasn't an owner in the NFL, uh, you know, the NFL actually sought him out, uh, comes in and then literally in 10 years of ownership because the Bucs came into existence in what, 72. So in 10 years between now to this time, you know, he's grown in power from an ownership perspective uh, to a level where they've entrusted him to kind of lead this. At the time, that's pretty unprecedented, right?
0: Yeah, it actually was because the power in the league, aside from Culverhouse, really rested with what was called the old guard owners. Wellington Mara, whose uh, family owned the Giants since 1925. George Hallis, an original founder of the league uh, in 1920. um, The people uh, like uh, Art Modell in Cleveland, uh, who was uh, the head of the TV committee, which of course at that time was the biggest generator of revenue for the league, Um, and uh, uh, many others who who played supporting roles, but uh, Culverhouse, oh excuse me, I forgot about Dan Rooney, who we're going to talk about here, and the, the Rooney family had owned the Pittsburgh Steelers since 1933, so that was the, the, the principal makeup of the old guard. But Culverhouse had found a way uh, to uh, uh, largely, I, I think, because of his legal expertise, had found a way uh, to put himself uh, front and center when it came to dealings with the NFLPA.
1: Hey, let that be a lesson to everybody. If you know tax law and you maybe worked at the IRS, you can move up no matter in what you do. But hey, now that's neither here nor there. But so, you know, to that end, so he brings in Jack Donlin. So, who was Jack Donlin, Rick?
2: Yeah, so so Jack Donlin um, had spent uh, fifteen years as, at National Airlines as their chief negotiator. I I found Jack uh, to be a, a, a really cynical guy who took a um, his take on labor management relations was he, he, he saw it as a game. He saw people as pieces to be manipulated and he actually really liked to force strikes because he knew that workers and in the and at the time we're talking about this is true even of NFL players were really living paycheck to paycheck and therefore if they went on strike and had to hold out for a period of time uh taking away the only thing they they had in the world, which is their bodies, their services. Uh, the economic crunch would get to them, and they would return to the bargaining table in a far weakened position uh, from the time they actually went out on strike, and uh, management would have a chance to drive a much harder bargain, or even perhaps break the union. And I think that was really Donald's intent. There, there was no look. There was no attitudes that you know. This is a bigger picture. Uh, there's plenty of money to be made. It was you know we're we you know we are in charge. You are the workers. We're gonna make you work for the least we possibly can, and we're gonna make the most we possibly can.
1: Well, because back then was it was it how it is today, where players predominantly got paid via game checks, or was there the way they were paid different?
0: No, they were paid predominantly by game checks, and the how often. They were paid was a subject of collective bargaining. It changed from CBA to CBA.
1: Right cool so we'll get into that more in a second but then finally our fourth kind of key character in today's show in the 82 strike uh and sort of interesting because he, he would he'll play a sort of a, an ambassador role as we get to the end of this story but would be dan rooney owner of the pittsburgh steelers who built you you knew really well so who was mr rooney ambassador rooney um and what was his significance in the league then and then obviously i think m- many fans know kind of. Of his importance moving forward.
0: Well, Dan Rooney was the son of Art Rooney Sr., the founder of the Pittsburgh Steelers. Um, Art Rooney Sr. was a, a Pittsburgh native, who was essentially a sports promoter. He had been a uh, quite a good semi-pro football and baseball player and a boxer. Um, he owned, uh, among other things, racehorses, uh, restaurants, and essentially bars. But he was principally a sports promoter. He came into the NFL when it was uh, franchises were available for a song um, in the uh, in the late 20s at the heart of the depression, and into the 30s, kept the Steelers afloat during World War II by combining in 1943 with the Philadelphia Eagles and in 1944 with the Chicago Cardinals. But more importantly, Mr. Rooney was a beloved figure in the league. And and basically a friend to everyone, uh, he was of course a beloved fig- figure all his life in Pittsburgh because of his charitable uh, nature and his his kindliness toward everyone. But he couldn't manage to fig to find a to field a winning football team. The Steelers were also rands virtually for all the time that that um, Mr. Rooney owned them. But uh, he, he put Dan in charge. And Dan uh, hired Chuck Knoll. Uh, they had two 2-and-14 two seasons. And then toward the late 70s and through this time in the 80s, the Steelers became, largely because of the steel curtain defense, but because of other great players like Terry Bradshaw and Franco Harris as well, uh, the marquee team in pro football. But rather than act like the big dog after being the little dog, for so long. Uh, Dan Rooney was just the opposite. He was exactly like his father, a very charitable, very honorable man with great integrity, tremendously funny, tremendously friendly, and, and a person who uh, everyone gravitated to. In addition, he was extremely level-headed and, and a very, very good businessman. So uh, he was in a position where he was sort of the uh, anti-Jack Donlin on the Management Council. He was well aware of the players and, the, and their concerns. Uh, his family had shared them for a long period of time. And for from this time forward, uh, actually from 1977 forward, until he left to become ambassador to Ireland uh, during the Obama administration, he was the enduring power in the league, trusted by everyone. Players, players' union, uh, management people, uh, employees. And the Pittsburgh Steelers were not only the flagship franchise, but the model franchise based in a city that loved them uh, with an owner and players and coaches who loved that city back.
1: Well, I'm going to throw a little bit of an audible at you, Bill, because uh, there had to have been, you know, and we'll we'll obviously know this as we go through and kind of get into '82 in detail. But you know, when Ambassador Rooney kind of left, there had to have been a huge gap in sort of ownership in the league. Who who has really stepped in to kind of fill that Dan Rooney role today?
0: John Mara of the of the New York Giants, sign of course of Tim Mara. Or- Actually, grandson of Tim Mara, the original founder and uh, son of Wellington Mara, who, along with uh, Dan Rooney, uh, was also a a beloved figure and, and revered figure in the league. It's interesting that all the years that I was a general manager and club president and therefore present at virtually every league meeting except that was a meeting that was held only for owners... Uh, you, you're normally allowed two per club, so I was the second guy for about uh, 18 of those years. Uh, when there was a very difficult issue on the table and debates were hot and uh, and, and heavy, um, usually the last person to speak, by design, was Wellington Merritt. Uh, he and uh, uh, the, the owner of the Jets, Leonard um Oh, gosh, I can't think of his last name. Leon Hess, excuse me, Leon Hess, uh, were usually the guys that had the last word, and they were usually representing what was the, the the sort of consensus of the old guard of the league. Dan would rarely speak when Mr. Hess was alive. Once Mr. Hess uh, passed on and the Jets were sold, Dan became more... Forward in the league meetings. Prior to that, he'd been the conciliator behind the scenes, which of course his father had played the same role in the early years of the league. Um, but as his as as time went on, uh, and, and Wellington got a little older and then passed away, Dan was the sort of the representative of of the old line families who had started the National Football League.
2: I can tell you that from the players' association standpoint. Uh, Dan and Wellington were basically irreplaceable. Uh, it was there was a, a deep feeling that they they had a sense of fairness to the players that they cared about their players um, as human beings, and in fact um, they were uh, the uh, owners members of something called the PCRC, the Player Club Relations Committee, which was a step before arbitration. Where we tried to mediate uh, disputes between clubs and players, uh, and as long as uh, the two of them were the the uh, owners' representatives, uh, the union responded in kind, and many, many you, you had to get three of the four votes in order to. Uh, avoid arbitration, so that meant that one owner had representative had a crossover or a or a union had a crossover and because those two gentlemen were so fair, there was a lot of crossing over and a lot of things got resolved uh, at the mediation at the pcRC level rather than having to take them to arbitration as soon as they were replaced uh, by uh, various people, the whole thing broke down, and, P- and PCRC became nothing other than uh, sort of a phantom stop along the way to arbitration. So uh, they, uh, it's, you can't really overemphasize the role they played. And uh, while, while I'm at this, I have to say that I, later I became very, very close with Leon Hess, and uh, he was just a wonderful man uh, and a great man and also was a guy who really cared about his players deeply.
0: Uh, I mentioned earlier that John Mara, uh, is now a, a key player in labor relations, and he is. He's joined by Robert Kraft of the New England Patriots, who was largely responsible, along with Jeff Saturday, uh, one of a one of my former players in Indianapolis, uh, for settling the lockout in 2011. So it's really John Mara, uh, who has a long run left in him in the league, and uh, and, and and Robert Kraft, who who basically. Uh, are the are the standard bearers for the management council these days?
1: Very cool. Well, one more piece of the puzzle that we need to put together, and you know, for, for our purposes, probably the most important piece of the puzzle. Where were you in 1982 in your football life, Bill?
0: I was a uh, advanced scout, pro scout for the Kansas City Chiefs, uh, toiling in the trenches, uh, learning my trade. There weren't many advanced scouts in those days. Uh, Kirk Mee of the Washington Redskins was a good friend that came to mind. Later on, Abe Gibron, a a great former player and coach uh, with the uh, Seattle Seahawks. But uh, I was out there uh, beating the bushes for talent, uh, filing scouting reports on the upcoming opponents, and, and basically learning about the National Football League from... My boss in Kansas City, both Marv Levy, the head coach, and Jim Schaap, the general manager, who was very, very instrumental in teaching me uh, how the league worked and, the, and, and what management was all about.
1: But so in being an advanced scout, did you have a sense that this labor discourse was coming? How would that impact your sort of life and career?
0: Oh, yeah, I, definitely. When you're an advanced scout, you're at the game of the upcoming opponent every week. And, and part of your preparation is to read everything that's written about that team in those days in the newspapers and to listen to some of what was spoken about on television and radio. But principally print was the, the way you learned about it. And um, and then in the press box on Sunday where the advanced scouts are seated, uh, I'd often run across some of the top columnists uh, around the country who covered the NFL, and and they would ask questions of me about our team. Uh, I'd try to be as, I, 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 I tell them as little as as I could and, and but they would often ask answer questions uh that I would uh, I would ask about the landscape of the league how things were going what was happening and uh and so I learned a lot uh, because if not at the center of the storm I was at least in the periphery and uh and not removed from it
1: Cause it's a really interesting view. Cause just to set the stage, I mean, you know, a lot of us forget that, you know, 30, 40 years ago, the the league was a, a, in a very different place than it is today. And, terms of from a television property i mean the league you know obviously very different tv time but the league was the 10th you know had the 10th rated television show on television behind things like 60 minutes dallas maybe 60 minutes should be rated number one again who knows but you know just my thought uh and league revenue at the time from a tv from a tv standpoint was kind of in that 450 to 490 about 470 million range uh and then you had kind of a legitimate burgeoning spring league threat coming with the usfl i mean what did the league look like you know as we as we head into kind of what's going to be a big labor dispute heading into the second week of the season
0: well the labor dispute is a precursor to what became it it, it was a thunderstorm which became a hurricane when the uh when the usfl came on board um the, the the player's Uh, And Rick will go into the demands that they made. But the players had some very specific and unique demands, um, which the owners uh, were unwilling to uh, embrace. And on the horizon was a spring league, the USFL, that was going to play in major league cities. uh, And no one quite knew what approach the USFL was going to take toward talent acquisition, but they, throughout the history of professional football going all the way back to the original founding of the NFL in 1920, the uh, advent of another league was the only thing that drove players' salaries up. Uh, the AAFC after World War II and now the USFL, they clearly knew, did the owners, that players' salaries were going to be on the rise with this new league. They didn't know how high, they didn't know how the league was going to approach it, but they were going up. There was no question about that. So this collective bargaining uh, uh, agreement and, and strike is is a a really bad thunderstorm, uh, but there was a hurricane on the horizon.
1: Because was the fear fact, so, I mean, just to set the stage, there's no, because... In nineteen eighty two there's no salary cap, right? There's right. there was, you know, there were minimums in terms of what you could spend on players. I think, you know, twenty to thirty two thousand dollars for four years in experience and then you know, those kinds of things. But there wasn't a cap, there was this kind of minor floor how did that affect your guys' thought process, decision-making, even on the scouting level in terms of, like, did you have a sense that big-name players, you know, that would eventually play and that you were going to lose out on them and the league was going to lose out on them because of maybe an unwillingness to spend or on the USFL side a willingness to spend astronomical amounts of money at the time to bring players in?
0: Uh, well, there might have been, but Donlin did his best – to tamp down any idea that uh, there ought to be concessions made to the union because the USFL was on the horizon. Um, Donlin was a, a warrior. He was a hawk. And therefore, his idea is pay the players as little as possible, give them as little as possible in benefits, and that's a victory for us, and we'll worry about the USFL when it comes along. So that was the prevailing ethos as they went into the 82 convic- uh, convic- uh, conv- collective bargaining, excuse me, um, situation.
2: You know, and Scott, you have to remember that though there was no cap, there was also no effective free agency. Nobody moved. Uh, though they, they theoretically had the right to move at the, at the end of their contractual obligation, as Bill earlier explained, uh, there was basically a tacit understanding. You didn't sign another guy's player. So uh, the only way, as Bill mentioned, uh, salaries ever spiked was when there was a, com- a competitor for those players, because there was not competition within the league, uh, and therefore salaries stagnate.
0: This was actually uh, a curveball that Garvey threw at the league, which at the time was viewed as not a curveball, but an atomic bomb, Mm -hmm. an unlivable situation by the owners. But what it did was stave off the players' focus on free agency. Their focus went away from free agency, which had been a big pre-'82 focus, and went to Garvey's demand of 55% of the gross. So free agency went on the back burner In 82, as Garvey put forth this, quote, communistic, close quote, approach that Culverhouse and Donlin couldn't wait to use as a pinata and and just take as big a baseball bats as they could and hammer away on the fact that this uh, communistic union leader was bringing communism to the NFL and therefore would cause the NFL's demise.
2: You know, which which is kind of ironic, given Bill, given the fact that the NFL owners had organized. I won't use the word communistic, but they had certainly organized the most successful socialistic enterprise in in probably in the history of the world. Right? With, I mean, maybe you could tell uh, everybody about you know the way revenue sharing worked and so on. I mean, it was completely socialistic.
0: Well, to start off with, Garvey recognized that revenue sharing. Uh, was a staple of stability in the league. Revenue was shared among the owners. And this goes back to uh, the late 1930s when television came to the fore. Uh, the Chicago Bears, the Cleveland Browns, the New York Giants had television networks of their own that they owned and circulated around various markets close to within 75 miles of their home territory. And, uh, and it became very lucrative. And then uh, along about 1955, the League began to think about whether or not they ought to sell their rights, uh, television rights as a whole, as an entire unit, rather than to allow these three behemoths to continue to grow and prosper and the others fall by the wayside. And Pete Rosell, the then commissioner, was able to convince them, and to convince Congress, by the way, because this was against the law, Uh, to allow them to pool uh, their resources and sell their rights uh, as a league, not as individuals, but as a league to a network or networks. So uh, they originally sold uh, the rights to the NFL in the early 1960s to CBS, and CBS paid a rights fee, which was divvied up in those days 12 ways everybody got the same even though the giants and the bears had by and the rams by far had the uh, the largest television markets um so that revenue sharing was a staple of the nfl from that time forward and it allowed the nfl to grow and prosper because it created competitive balance everybody had the same amount of television money to spend and they spent it basically on players. And so if you track spending, even to this day, actually, um, player spending almost until uh, 1993, tracked directly with team television revenue. So if television revenue in a given year was $50 million per team, that's what they spent on salaries. There was no governor on salaries. There was no nothing that prevented them from paying more. Many, like Culverhouse, paid less. But generally speaking, television money funded player salaries because that was all shared revenue, and then gate receipts, tickets, parking, concessions. And later on, as we enter the 1989 period, uh, luxury boxes began to bring revenue into owners' pockets that previously did not exist. Ticket sales were were, were a a, a source of revenue, but were quickly passed by television revenue. So for Garvey to come in and say, I want 55% of the gross revenues, whatever that was, he didn't really know what it was, um, the owner said, no, no, we're not giving you a percentage of the gross your workers were the owners. At the same time, they were sharing 100% of the television revenue among them.
2: You know, and, and when you think about that, a, a couple of things. Number one, you know, sports is really the, the most labor-intensive, uh, you know, enterprise there is. Because when you, build, when you think about costs, other than players, I mean, they're relatively de minimis. So if you have one funding source... That's going to pay the, the the cost of all your labor, uh, and you're right. The, the other monies weren't uh, as high as they are, you know, in, in in the in the newer era. But all the all the other monies, you know, just could basically go into the pockets of the owners. Uh, and Garvey, uh, the other thing about his philosophy was, uh, and why he sort of backed off free agency at this point in time and went for the 55% idea was, he felt that the guys who could really generate bids in free agency, which were the stars, were already making enough money and could take care of themselves. And what he was trying to do was to assure that the average player or the players on the bottom uh, of the salary spectrum, spectrum were going to be taken care of, and they needed the union to do that because they didn't have uh, the, the power uh, to do that individually. Uh they were they were just ch- uh, chattel they were fungible uh and uh they needed uh something like what he had in mind to get them what ed believed to be each player's fair share of a very successful uh, enterprise even at even at that point in time
1: but i think this is where we even as fans today get confused so all right. So let's take two two steps back. So in terms of revenue, in terms of pooled revenue, the owners share television revenue, but with the gate receipts, merchandising, that other revenue, does that go into the pool or is that something that the individual teams just keep for themselves?
0: In those days, the individual teams kept it for themselves. And Garvey, Essentially, I think Rick will, Rick knows more about this from the union side than I. But Garvey was essentially asking for a piece of that.
2: Yeah, yeah, uh, you know, and and as, as time would go along, as NFL properties w- was built out, and uh, there were other sources of income, there was there was pooling of that um, as well. Uh, you know, uh, and and Bill, what uh, I'm trying to recall the um, the gate receipts split between the home team and the visiting team. At that point in time, can you can you remember
0: yeah that that goes back that goes back to the 1930s uh, when only the Giants and the Bears drew big and the Washington Redskins drew big crowds. Um, the owners uh, the, the have not owners, if you will, those that didn't draw big crowds wanted a significant portion of the gate receipts. so thirty seven percent thirty seven percent of the gate receipts for a home game. Uh, went to the visiting team, um, and that was true until we hit um, uh, somewhere in the 2000s, where ancillary, so-called ancillary revenue had, had had blossomed so much that they took all of the visiting uh, team revenue and put it in a pool, and and everybody shared one thirty-second of that, uh, which made it even more equitable among the owners.
2: Right and i'll tell you in in, in my career, uh, when people would ask me uh, whether it was uh, players I was going to represent or or civilians uh, uh, asked me about this uh, i and I tried to explain it to them. Um, I would say to them, uh, what percentage of the money from the Super Bowl do you think the winning team gets and they're talking about the players' bonuses the actual owner of the winning team what what percentage of the The money do they get? And they got Some people would say 50 percent. Some people would say 70 percent. And I would say to them, they get one. And this type point in time, there are 32 teams. They get one 32nd of the money from the Super Bowl. And the team that wins one game or no games, they also get one 32nd of this of the money from the Super Bowl. And people were astounded and sort of appalled at this. And you know, it was only when you tried to get them to to understand that. That that you could really begin to for them to appreciate the, the 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 dynamics that were at play in this in this labor management balance.
1: So when Garvey's asking for like fifty five percent of the total revenue, what would that go to on the player side? So would that account for? Again, because I even think in the modern context, people get confused about this when they hear about the new CBA, where players are getting, I think, between 47 or 48 and a half percent, depending on how many games there are. But, you know, does that does that go to player salary or is that is that allotted in somewhere in the cap or is this money that's outside of kind of current player money? And this goes to things like pension, you know, health care benefits, those kinds of things. How does that work?
0: The gross number that you hear, 47, and a half, uh, 47 to 48.5%, it takes into account every dollar that is earmarked for players. And then there are subsets of that. Players' salaries, bonuses, etc., come out of that. That's the cap. Um, the, 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 the cap caps spending for player salaries. Then over and above that, there are... Expenditures for which are collectively bargained for pension, for health benefits, for uh, retirement benefits, for uh, previous retirees, um, for uh, 401k. There's an additional 401k plan for severance. All of those so-called benefit costs are included in that number that the players receive. And then it's broken down. Uh, through a very strict accounting process that's agreed to uh, on an ongoing basis, on a daily basis, by the Players Association representatives and Management Council's representatives.
2: Yeah. Now, at that point in time uh, that we're talking about, some of those categories didn't even exist. Uh, And of course, uh, at, at the union, we were trying to figure out what 55% of the gross really meant because there were no, you know, you you tried to figure out um, what each club was making. And the the only way to do that uh, was to look at the numbers from the Green Bay Packers because they were the only publicly disclosed uh, uh, team because they were owned by the the city of Green Bay and and were a public entity. So there was a lot of extrapolation and guessing going on as to what 55% of the gross really meant. But I can tell you that in in, in Ed's mind, he did did not think that players were being apportioned anything close to 55% of, of the gross at that point in time.
1: And was there ever any pushback from owners? So, like, because, I mean, I know this from, like, sort of the film business because this feels very much like prints and advertising, right? So, like, you know, in in my life in the movies, when we deliver a movie to the studio, obviously our revenue share on gross receipts from the movie kicks in after what's called P&A. So, prints and advertising, which is insane today because it's not like you make prints of the movies or just distributed digitally but like you know what's crazy is and maybe i think maybe even from a pa perspective they did a bad job of kind of marketing this even to fans because i don't think fans even today really get this that like that's just gross it's not sort of cut after expenses but the players have a hard time i mean even today don't the players probably have a hard time figuring out what that exact number is or is that fully transparent how how does that accounting side work
0: no, it, 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 it's totally transparent. The union gives it to the player reps, who in turn will answer questions from the players. But the rank-and-file players uh, don't pay much attention to the pension plan. Uh, they pay a little more attention to severance. They want to know what's in my paycheck 17 times a year. That's <laughs> that's right. all they want.
1: That's about it. That's all we, any of us care about.
0: It's only when they become retired players that they take far more uh, active interest in their pension plan.
2: Right. I, and I think, uh, but in, you know, in terms of what you're asking, yeah, the the numbers are now disclosed. I mean, that, that was also, you know, again, not the case then. And, and, uh, you know, <laughs> and I think that the, uh, the film industry, Scott, is a lot less transparent in terms of, uh, you know, Forrest Gump has still not made money. So,
1: yeah, no, but I mean, you would get, you'd have to think at the time you would have owners who at some level were probably crying poor and say, because, I mean, even in doing like the, the research for this episode, you know, looking at sort of like the Buccaneer spending, for example, like with Hugh Culverhouse, you know, th- they were, you know, uh, purported in to, to players to be around fifth, I think, in the league in terms of spending money on players and then famously underpaid Doug Williams and some other stuff. But then, as it turned out, once you actually got the reasonable data, they were closer to 20 First, so I think even at this uh, this time in the league, it was a huge undertaking for the players to get this data, understand what this data meant, and it was truly kind of a transformational argument for Garvey to even be asking this.
0: It was, and and the thing it did was distract both the players and management away from the free agency argument, which had been the linchpin of everything that preceded this 1982 strike. And would, again, be the linchpin that almost brought the league to its knees uh, in the not-too-distant future.
1: So, I mean, did this come as just a total surprise to, like, like just from a negotiation standpoint— Like, was this, because Rick, you probably know this as well as anybody, like, was this just a total surprise to like the ownership and to to Donlin in particular, that this was going to be, you know, shake our fist, big, big public demand that wasn't going to be free agency, that it was going to be, you know, we want this revenue split. Did this throw the owners off at any, did this give leverage to the players early in this process? Well, um, you know, obviously I don't know exactly what the owners knew, but I mean, think about it, how many
2: players there are in the league, Uh, you know, they're, they're closely covered by the press, people talk. Uh, So it was, it was not like this was, uh, you know, completely out of the blue. I mean, there, there had been discussion leading into this collective bargaining agreement, uh, you know, um, among uh, all the the players on all the teams and the, and union officials. Uh, So I would imagine, you know, uh, Bill, even maybe you know, but you know they sort of knew something was coming. But I think the point, really, the major point is what, what Bill was referring to before. At this point, you know, Ed and, the, and you know Ed really ran this thing from the top down, because as as Bill said, most players are just worrying about making the team, getting playing time, staying healthy when they get injured. Then you have a rep from each club. Uh, so let's say even when it's it at 32 you have 32 guys then those guys select uh the board the board or seven guys and ed needed a majority of the and the reps would do whatever the board said the players would do whatever the reps said so if ed could control four guys which is a majority of the board he controlled the entire union uh and that's why he was was you know did things like uh become the union for all the soccer players, a lot of other ideas you know that that he advanced uh that were sort of much more uh far afield than than anything the players would have had in had in mind so at this point he had just decided that uh the mechanism of free agency, even if you got it to the players wasn't going to work it wasn't going to get the you know most guys paid sufficiently so he gave it up, and he went for the 55% of the gross. And as, and as Bill said, therefore, the, it, it wasn't, it wasn't uh, lost on Ed that, that, was, that he was abandoning free agency. He was abandoning free agency because he felt free agency would never yield the players a, the, the, the fair share. So instead, eliminate the middleman and go right after the fair share.
0: Don't forget, the, uh, the union's rallying cry prior to this had been no football, no freedom, no football. Right. It's and like, now they were asking for fifty five percent of the gross. From a public relations standpoint, no freedom, no football was not something that the general public basically rejected. I mean there was a there was a feeling of you know what, that might be fair. It was a harder argument for the NFL to defeat. Fifty five percent of the gross portrayed as a communist plot in nineteen eighty two. Wasn't, as I right. said earlier, an easy pinata for Donlin to take a baseball bat to.
1: Yeah, that, that dog didn't, hunt. You're right,
2: Bill. But you know what's funny? Uh, over the years, when I'd have discussions with people and talk about the idea of free agency, uh, the average person would say, would sort of look at this as like some extraordinary thing that players were asking for. When the fact is that everybody but those players is a free agent. I mean, if you you work at a law firm and you don't want to work there anymore, you go to another law firm. You work for a grocery store, you don't you you, you don't want to work there, you go to another grocery store. Everybody else in the world is a free agent, uh, at least in, in Western democracies, and the players are the only trying to get the same right to move that way uh, that all the other citizens in the country had. And so I always found it uh, ironic that this was looked at as sort of some you know uh, special Kind of treatment they were looking for because they were wonderful athletes, whereas really they're just asking for the same to be treated the, the way everybody else was, and therefore it is a lot easier to understand that you know that if you you won't let me uh if you won't let me be a free guy to move if I want to move uh you know I'm not going to play for you I'm going to withhold the own thing I have, which is my body and my services so uh and I agree that fifty five percent of the gross with with the owners controlling. Uh, the media, to a great extent, uh, was was really uh, something that was going to be hard to sell to fans and and who already thought players made a lot, too much money and were being greedy.
1: So, so Bill, in terms of how this impacted your life, so the the strike would actually start. Uh, kind of in light of this, this demand, you know, both sides are entrenched and the, the strike would start on September 21st, 1982, following a Monday night football game at the old giant stadium. So right at the end of week two. So, so what happens, like even in your life as an advanced scout from like the mechanics of the strike, obviously the players are gone, but does you, what, what happens in your life? Does life sort of go on as normal? Do you start focusing on other stuff?
0: Well, the personnel department focused on uh, on college scouting. Uh, college season was still going, so we turned our efforts in that regard, feeling that these things always end, and, and at some point there would be an end and we'd get back to business, which is what we did. Um, it ended badly for us in Kansas City. Uh, for us, I mean Marv Levy and his staff, of which I was a member, uh, because there was so much bad blood the strike ended with with not even a hint of 55% of the gross um it, it they got increased minimums uh they got increased pension uh and benefits but nothing much more and they lost really all the money that they that you know they'd lost when they were not playing uh it didn't come back in a lump sum or something like that so Um, the players were very bitter about it, bitter toward management. And they were divided among themselves in the sense that the higher paid players felt, well, okay, we tried. The lower paid players who were maybe going to lose their jobs and, and certainly lost a great deal of money were terribly bitter toward management about it. So we had a split locker room. And when we came back, a very promising team that had gone nine and seven and barely missed the playoffs the year before in the third year or fourth year of a rebuilding mode, now collapsed. And even though the last two or three games of the season we played more than well enough to win and actually beat the New York Jets, who were um, uh, the uh, Eastern Division champions on the last game of the season, um, Mr. Uh, Hunt decided uh, to uh, make a change in Kansas City and Marv Levy and Everybody else with him was fired. right It, it was interesting yeah, I mean that that experience clearly, clearly, clearly drove the way we approached the strike of '87 and and it was radical, and it got us in trouble with it with both Marv Levy and I, of course, were in Buffalo at the time. Uh, at Mr. Wilson, our owner, supported us. Uh, Donlan just despised us, and uh, probably me more than anybody. And uh, uh, but it proved to be uh, the the linchpin for our success in Buffalo. So when it, the, the you know they say one door closes, another opens. The bitter experience of the strike of '82 in Kansas City led us to ultimately four straight Super Bowls in Buffalo.
1: Right. I mean, I guess to that point, kind of. Do, do you know that? In the process of doing this, like, because obviously everybody knew that there was bad blood, two entrenched sides, Uh, you know, the strike would go for 57 days. I mean, were there any options? in 82 uh, or discussions around replacement players or staging? I mean, I know the players themselves famously staged two all-star games where, uh, you know, D.C. legend John Riggins uh, famously is quoted as saying he would do anything for money uh, when only 8,000 people showed up for the uh, D.C. game. But, I mean, was there any talk from ownership at that point in 82, because it obviously would be a big deal in 87, about replacement players or just different options for what to do?
0: Well, I was not in the league meetings at that time, so I can't speak to it personally. But I didn't hear anything about it. And once the players staged the All-Star games and they were such abject failures, I don't think anybody on the ownership side had any, any desire to stage replacement games uh, because they could see that the union was crumbling, their position was crumbling, and ultimately the strike was going to get settled on their terms, on management's terms, Uh, before too long
2: you know Donlin's strategy was a was a harsh strategy but he was right you know he, he, he basically brought the union back on their knees
1: so i guess to that point i mean the one sort of kind of interesting thing in 82 that we haven't kind of touched on is you know when you have a when you have a you know a strike like this what happens you know from a tv deal standpoint so because I, I think this is obviously, you know, living in the coronavirus world, everybody's kind of interested about this now. But, you know, how, did, how does that work with the, the league's deals with TV, you know, you, in that time or even now, just in terms of if the league can't stage games on television, are there givebacks or clawbacks that the network have? How does that work?
0: Yeah, there are clawbacks in every, every network contract. Now, depending on the circumstances, they're subject to negotiation. Um, Typically, it's numbers of games televised. And so uh, if you have a shortened season, uh, you will hear talk and you heard talk in in the past and actually saw actions in the past where the playoffs were expanded, which gave uh, the networks extra games and extra games at a time when everybody was watching television and games that, quote, counted, close quote, toward the championship. And uh, and so uh, that's typically how it works. Um, th- those The networks in the NFL are partners, and while one pays the other money, um, in, in all but one case that I can remember, um, the NFL has always wanted to keep the networks happy and vice versa.
1: Right. So, I mean, I think everyone famously will remember in the 82 season it would actually end with an expanded playoff format where you'd have 16 of the 28 teams compete in the playoffs. So that probably was born out of some negotiation between ownership and the networks, because one thing just from a kind of dumb fans perspective, at least that I was thinking of, is if there were clawbacks in these TV deals, you wonder if if it's at some level a benefit of the players to hold out even longer, just to see at what point, you know, in this phase, the owners would break. But I guess, you know, players, because they were on a check to check basis just didn't have the liquidity or the ability to do that at this time.
0: You are absolutely right. And that's true. Even today.
1: Exactly. I mean, that's, that's the whole Donald theory
2: that management will ultimately always have the deep pockets and the players cannot withstand the pressure.
1: I think that's the scary foreshadowing of what uh, a potential labor stoppage would look like in the future NFL, maybe twenty, thirty years from now. Of as you know, players begin to make more money, have other ancillary revenue streams outside of football, and you know, as we learn the sort of potentially navigating these uncharted TV waters. It'll be interesting to see what kind of leverage the players have moving forward uh, in these kinds of deals. Cause it'll be, I, I think the the pendulum may change at some point one day.
0: I think you're right, but a, a lot of it's going to depend on what the media landscape looks like going forward. And, and one of the, mo- the, the most um, compelling reasons that both sides agreed to this new collective bargaining agreement is that neither can predict what the uh, media landscape is going to look like going forward. So they entered into a 10-year deal, which guarantees labor peace for 10 years, and therefore maximum flexibility for the league and its players to take advantage of whatever changes take place in the media landscape. Uh, That proved to be a approach to things because uh, now with the pandemic, uh, the world has changed dramatically, and the future of uh, full stadiums, mass gatherings, that kind of thing, from a legal perspective and a practical perspective, is really in doubt. Uh, Zeke uh, Emmanuel, who is a uh, renowned... Uh, finish, uh, physician and, and a guy who spends a lot of his time thinking about the future and how things, uh, how disease and disease control affects the future, uh, said unequivocally over the weekend that he doesn't see any mass gatherings until 2021.
2: Yeah, I was just going to mention that uh, that his brothers. Uh, you know, our area manual, who's the rare area gold, and Rahm Emanuel, who is the mayor of uh, Chicago. So they're a very underachieving family. So I don't know why anybody would really want to listen to what they have to say.
1: But I think to that end, Bill. I mean, you know, as we, I'm going to pull a little bit of an audible here on this one. Just. Because I think it's pertinent. There, there are some really strange parallels, if you think about it, you know, between 82 and sort of where we are from a modern standpoint, you know, as we enter, you know, 40 years later, there's going to be a new TV deal in 2022. Obviously, the pandemic is going to change some of how that works. And I, you would have to assume at some level, the owners wish that the players hadn't agreed to this current deal. But what what do you see the future of television in the NFL looking like for from a from a TV property standpoint, do you think the rights will move to streaming services? What what is your sense of where we'll be, you know, uh, in two or three years as these negotiations take place?
0: Well, I often said when people ask me who might win a football game my my team was involved in, um, I don't bet, and if I did, I'd go broke. So I'm not a very good prognosticator. I deal with the things that that I that I know. One thing I know is, and I'm echoing Paul Tagliabue here, uh, our game, which is played in a rectangle, fits very well into the rectangular television screen. Our game is played uh, and reaches its zenith in the uh, winter months when much of the country is indoors and watching television. Our game has... Uh, A a tremendous following because of our liberal TV policy, where effectively every game is televised in some form or another into the market of every team. That much we know. And we know that in a landscape now with 500 television stations, um, and, and therefore a fragmented market, so Uh, market share is is completely uh, destroyed from what it was in the early days of television or even in the, in the heyday of television in the seventies and eighties. The only thing that draws uh, consistent, huge uh, ratings and consistent, huge audiences is football and NFL football draws biggest of all. So, Ours will be, ours, I say, NFL, is a hot property. The question of who will pay to televise or disseminate that hot property in what form is very much open. For example, up until today, we presumed that ABC and ESPN would make a joint bid for... Sunday night football and potentially Monday night football together. Well, guess what? Disney company's theme parks are closed and will be for a long period of time. Their cruise business may never come back. The world has changed. So uh, the short answer is stay tuned.
1: Yeah. Cause you wonder if this is the moment, this is the moment where the NFL builds, you know, this is totally kind of going to be a out there idea, but do you know if there's ever been discussion about the NFL building their own over the top like OTT network where they just distribute programming directly themselves and then there's some sort of you know annual direct subscription fee kind of modeling that they would do?
0: Of course, that's the NFL Network. And the and that's why the NFL right. Network was was originally built out uh and now there are legal uh, implications there but the NFL has the best legal minds in the country both in and out of their uh their offices uh so there th- there's no reason to believe that that they haven't been working on that part of it for a long time including streaming so if it's uh, the the NFL's in perfect position to do that in fact in better position than most other professional sports
2: Bill I am in uh, total uh accord with your take there my only caveat would be that um we need you know go back to the original antitrust exemption the league received from congress there was a built-in obligation to deliver games uh free of direct charge to consumers so, and that of course all there was was broadcast television in those days uh now that we have these other mechanisms whether it is streaming uh, or the NFL network itself, uh, I, my my guess would be while some games could come that way, um, the requirement of the antitrust exemption would still be there to um, in, say that the majority of the games are going to have to be delivered, uh, how, however they're done, but they have to be delivered free of direct charge uh, to the viewer.
0: Well, you can always you can even if you're the nFL network, you can always provide free television uh, It's fairly easy to do. The question is uh, who would carry it under what uh, uh, under what rights fee set up, et cetera uh, that that's pretty complying with the law is pretty easy to to do. The landscape of who the disseminators are going to be remains to be seen. I think that's a that's an open question and the point that disney company is today a very different company going forward than it was just 48 hours ago is or even 2 weeks ago is just proof of that
1: mhm that's true and then I guess the other thing that would sort of be born out of this, just from a strict audible standpoint, is in light of the the USFL and sort of its birth right around the time of the 82 strike, you know, this week we saw the uh, demise of the XFL. Do you, do you think this is probably, I mean, obviously, you know, coronavirus and COVID is going to affect this moving forward, but... We're probably entering a lull, dark period, don't you think, for another competitive spring league unless the NFL became their own broadcast partner and saw the necessity of it?
0: Yeah, I don't think there's any question about that. The XFL, by the way, I heard was going to declare bankruptcy today or sometime in the near future, uh, which, uh, you know, whether that's a good or bad financial move for the people that work there remains to be seen. But its demise was assured when the NFL expanded its practice squad and regular season uh, squad numbers um, essentially by five per team in this new collective bargaining agreement. That's 160 jobs, and, uh, and that that's too few players. Uh, it leaves too few players for any spring league to function efficiently in and And obviously the people at the uh at the x f l uh saw that as as well as we can. in addition, the idea of mass gatherings being the last thing to come on board uh is also uh a consideration because their product would not be uh a very uh marketable product on television as a standalone so um uh, bottom line. I think we've seen the last of the of, of the spring leagues, at least for the uh, until some new normal settles in, and, and this is a ten-year CBA. Um, it's unlikely that that someone's with two leagues, two spring leagues. Uh, by the way, well-run football operations, uh, self-serving in 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 one sense, saying that, but <laughs> so was the XFL. Um, the the uh, the bottom line is uh that they couldn't make money and why are you gonna be in business if you can't make money?
1: Yeah. No. And then this is this is a last personal request for me as we uh wrap up the eighty two episode in light of all that's happening with coronavirus. I don't know if you guys saw it this week. Did you see in the Chinese baseball leagues that they've got robots in the stands, uh being like fake fans at their baseball games?
0: <laughs> I did. <laughs> Both of you guys both of you guys know more about more about how to how to do filming th- th- than I. but. Uh, okay. aren't some sports movies shot with cardboard extras? In the stands? Yeah,
1: which you which you can do, but this is a plea. This is more of an end a podcast plea, uh, Bill. If there's anybody you can talk to at the league that just avoids, like, God forbid, we can't be in the state stands next season, and we do we're lucky enough to get a season. If there's any way we can avoid having horrifying robot animatronic things in the stands. We got to get that word out because it's creepy. It's scary. And I think it just makes everything worse. And oh, by the way, why do they have all these robots who they can just wheel out and now have fans at sporting events in like 10 minutes?
2: It's the rise of the
1: machine. (laughs) We got to get the word out. So I don't know who we have to talk to, but if uh, we can't do it, if you're listening to the podcast, Please, please try to get the word out. Uh, We do not need robots uh, at FedEx Field or at any other NFL venue uh, next fall. Well, with that, that's today's show. Uh, Hopefully you like it. If you have questions or anything you want to talk about on the show, uh, please remember to hit us up on social media. We'll try to get to your questions and answer them on a future episode. And again, thank you for the time today, guys, and stay safe.
2: Stay safe, everybody. That's that's the watchword of the day.
0: Amen. Stay safe and our condolences uh, and and good wishes to everyone who suffered with this uh, terrible pandemic.
1: Very true. Well, thank you, guys. Hopefully you enjoyed it, and uh, we'll see you next week.
2: Thank you for listening to Believe.